Hello, and welcome to episode 109 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Chris Barkham. Chris is the creator of Superior Sam. This is Matt, and I'm joined by my Constructing Comics co-host, Noah. Hey there. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Could you give us a quick bio about yourself, and then we'll get into some uh, good old-fashioned comics talk. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Chris Barkham. I'm the creator and the writer of The Amazing Adventure of Superior Sam. Um, 35 years old. I live in Stanton, Virginia. I'm a, a medically retired police officer. I served with the Albemarle County Police Force for just under seven years before I retired. Um, and big Captain America guy, big comic book guy. So yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, I'm really excited to just get back and talk comics and things like that. So Excited to have you on. Yeah, I, I know you through the uh, local comic shop in the Shenandoah Valley area of Harrisonburg and Stanton, um, Secret Lair Comics. And and uh, yeah, definitely one of my highlights is going in and talking to you about everything comics. And I was very excited to hear that you had your own comic to talk about. So yeah, happy to have you on to, to talk about that. So Chris, let's do a little bit of a uh, origin story. What uh, what was what was it that got you into the comics, or what was was were some of the first comics that you enjoyed? So it's funny, like I think like a lot of people when I was a kid, I remember, and and I'm an I'm an '80s baby, so like I grew up in the '90s with like the image boom and everything. But I remember it was shortly after my parents divorced. My dad would actually let us walk to Seven Eleven. And I would see comic books on the rack and we would buy those and a soda or candy or something and come back and read them. And it's like some of the first comics I bought, it was always really random because the guy that owned the store where we would buy them, he didn't stock like regular books. He would buy like those, like, I don't know if you've ever heard of this or seen this done, but there are retailers that just buy like old comics from stores and then bundle them and sell them to other retailers to market just so they have something. And that's how this guy would buy it, do this. So he would buy just 10 random comic books and then there'd be 10 random books on a shelf. So and it was funny because I grew up in a small town. I grew up in Northeast Ohio in Ashtabula County, which despite being the biggest county, it's really rural. So there's not a lot of stuff. And like where I lived with my mother was really in the country. We lived right behind a farm. But like my dad lived down in the harbor, which was a little more of like the city side of the town. But when we got a mall, that was the big deal because we got a, we got a, um, a Walden's books. Oh yeah. And I remember like Walden books because DC still did the, the newsstand. Mm -hmm. So like you found DC comics in there and you found consecutive issues. Like I remember like death of Superman hit right when I was getting into comics. And like, I was able to find all of those comics, you know, Superman, Adventures of Superman, Man of Steel. Like I was able to find all those and I really enjoyed all that. And then it was Image came, like Image burst on the scene. And I remember getting like Spawn comics and things like that. And it was funny because like one of my earliest memories of getting comics was going to Sam's Club. And there was like, it was a short box. It was a black short box and it had all these image number ones and like 25 issues of spawn. Wow. And it was like, this is so cool because like I had never seen this before. And then we got like a little, like we got like a mall comic con. I don't know if you guys ever like went to one of those back then, but like trading cards were big, but like, it was like, it was like a con in the mall. And 
you met people and like, I don't remember half anybody I met. Like I could have met somebody really famous and never know. Yeah. Cause I was only a kid. Like I was 10 or 11. And then like everybody, like, you know, you hit that one age where it's like, this is not cool anymore. Um, girls. Yeah. Yeah. Girls. <laughs> so you stop. But then it was funny because it was really back in 2000, late 2011, I was recovering from one of my surgeries and I'd always liked certain superheroes. It was funny. Like even when I wasn't reading, like I kept tabs on like Captain America and Batman because they were heroes I always liked. And when I became a cop, Punisher's big in the police community. Really? Yeah. Like every cop, it's weird. Like, I don't know if you guys remember, but Matthew Rosenberg did an issue of Punisher where he, uh, he kind of called out police officers for liking the Punisher. Yeah. And it yeah. got a little notoriety, but I really agreed with the issue. And that was one of those things. Cause like cops, like, like what the Punisher is. And I always joke to people, like if you had a pick of a cop, you never went to the cop with the Punisher t-shirt. You no. went to the one with the cap or the Batman. <laughs> like that's yes. what you ran towards. But it was funny because I remember what specifically got me back into comics like really full time was I was recovering in the hospital from one of my surgeries, my early surgeries, and somebody had left me a hardcover of Captain America, the Winter Soldier at, by Ed Brubaker and Steve Epting. And because they knew I liked the Marvel movies. So they just bought it for me as a gift and they left it. I don't know to this day who left it for me. Like, I really don't. I just woke up and it was in a pile of stuff with some other gifts and I read it and I was hooked. Wow. So. And then was, uh, when, when did you like decide that like, you know, reading comics uh, that you wanted to write and create comics yourself? So shortly after I left the police department, I hadn't officially retired and we were still waiting for the paperwork. But what happened is, is I went to teach in an after school program. And it was for a company called Bricks for Kids. And they taught math, science, and engineering using Legos. So I'm oh. a huge Legos guy. Okay. And one of the kids I taught, he was on the spectrum. And I taught this kid for two years. And when I was getting ready to leave to have the amputation surgery, finally on my leg, it had gotten bad enough. He wanted to know why I wasn't going to be his teacher. Because this program only went for like six weeks at a time. And this kid appeared week after program after program after program for two years like he was in every program at the school and it was funny because he started off like the first time i met this kid i was on a cane and in a walker and on like a walk and i had a walking brace and he yanked the cane out from under me and i collapsed to the ground oh, man. and like by the end of the, the time he was one of my favorite students wow but he didn't understand like i couldn't explain to him what was happening like in a way that he could understand, like if I go into the full like medical, what's wrong with my leg, how I lost, most adults don't understand. There are doctors that I've met that only want to meet me just to hear my story. So it's very interesting. But to try to explain this to a 12-year-old kid, it wasn't possible. So I, I tried to find him a book because I always learned through books. And all I found were medical journals and like and like weird like autobiographies and things like that, but not something for a kid. So I wrote him a story and it got picked up as a children's book actually first. And then my publisher, shortly after the book came out, we were working on the second, the second book. My publisher shut down. The owners had embezzled all the money and fled to uh, Canada. And 
basically I was left with no book, no, no nothing. And I'd been reading comics pretty heavily for a few, you know, that was in 2012 and this is now 2016, but I owned the rights to everything still. Okay. That was part of the condition in the contract. I had attorneys look it over and they were like, yeah, you own everything that you created except for what they did. So I was like, well, let's say I wanted to make this into a comic book. Could I do it? And they're like, yeah, just don't use anything that you like. You published with them, basically like rewrite it. And I was like, well, what about like the characters? And they're like, yeah, you can use all that because you created that before. So we were able to do all that stuff and we did. And it's funny because like, I look at the book and I'm proud to say that I'm a published author, but I never liked the book. And when I got the first couple pages to the comic, I saw that we were doing what I wanted to do so much better. Like what I had hoped to accomplish with the comic, with the book, came out so much better in the comic. And I knew from there I would never publish Sam as a book again. And I got a copy of the book to the kid. I, I don't, the company closed, so I was never able to get him the comic, but I got him the book. But that's how Sam was created. It was created as a way to teach a kid on the spectrum about how his teacher was going to lose his leg. Wow. And would you mind explaining to us what happened to your leg? If you, that's, if that's not too personal of a question. No, I get asked it all the time. It's just okay. to try to get into like the big detail takes a lot, but I was involved in a training accident at work every year. If you're not familiar in law enforcement, you have to requalify with all of your equipment. You get legal updates. And basically it's like a two to three week, like retraining just to update you on everything, like changes to the law, equipment changes and to make sure you're still qualified to carry them. And we were doing a team building dr drill at the end of the day. And I was one of the fastest people on the department. It's, it's funny. When I was a cop, I was, 510 and 136 pounds. And wow. I had actually been mistaken one time as being part of the make a wish program. <laughs> like that's just how like pale and short my hair was too. And um I was running to engage a series of horizontal targets because it was a timed drill. It was a timed exercise. And as I was running, I was running in the mud and I went up, I, I slipped and I went straight into the air and I came straight down. And I just I remember like my foot rolled underneath me and I literally sat on it and snapped my ankle. And I remember like limping off the course and like I had to cut my own boot off and everything. It was really weird because people thought this was like a paintball move because that's what I did was I played paintball a lot back when I was a police officer. And I was like, no, this is not like I'm really hurt. And um, so, so they took me to like, they took me to prompt care. They did x-rays. They didn't show any fractures, but I was diagnosed with a, with a pretty bad sprain. When it didn't heal up, I started seeing like ankle specialists and I didn't get the greatest medical care early on. It wasn't the fault of my department. They were paying for everything. My workman's comp was great. It just was the doctor I was seeing wasn't the best. And nine months later, my ankle still hadn't healed. So I was seeing a new doctor and they did some surgeries to try to correct what they thought was wrong because they had done more imaging and things. And, um, what, they don't know what caused it, but what they do know and what I've been told is, is I had a dormant birth defect. I had a nerve disease known as complex regional pain syndrome, or it's something like rhythmic sympathory dystrophia was like the old name. It was, it was RSD. Wow. And 
it was a really rare nerve disease that most commonly affected women. And there's two types, type one and type two. Um, type two is curable to a degree. Type one is not. And I have type one. But what it is, is it's a progressive nerve disease that causes your empathetic nervous system, which is what controls your blood flow, your body's heat and cold. And it primarily, it, but I'm trying to figure out the best way to it. So it affects that nervous system. And what it causes them to do is to become pain sensitive. So as they're sending the signals from your limbs, it only affects your limbs. But as it was sending the signals that like it needed more blood or it needed to adjust, it's sending pain signals the entire time. So you're in immense amounts of pain to the point where the best way I can describe it is it's like, it's like getting stabbed just constantly over and over and over again. And everything stimulates it because you get hypersensitivity. So they, I immediately was red flagged. They couldn't do any more surgeries. And basically I was told your nerve disease isn't famous enough. There's no research. So within five to 10 years, you're going to lose your leg. It's going to die. Like it's just going to, the nerve disease is going to destroy it and you're going to lose your leg. And it's, and it's really rough because the nerve disease is also known as like one of those silent killers because suicide is such a high side effect of it. Really? Yeah. It's, it's, it's got a horrible mortality rate that goes with because trying to explain pain and show pain is not easy. Like it's something very difficult to do. And for somebody to understand, it's easier if they can see it. And this is something you can't see. Like when you look it up in a medical journal and you look up like the symptoms, like it's just pages because it fits such a wide variety and you think it's like an escape all disease or, but it's not it. The people that have it, it really wrecks their lives. It's like the best description I can give. It's like having um, rheumatoid arthritis. Like you, you can sometimes see it, but for the most part, it's an internal battle that you're going to fight and you're going to spend the rest of your life on medication. And that's ultimately what happened is, is, um, my leg got to the point, so my leg was getting so bad that my life was falling apart. So I went to my doctor, who I was now seeing, and I still see. This is my, um, by the way, if you're counting, this would be my 12th doctor I was seeing at this point, oh, because it was an extremely rare disease. And I told him, I was like, just cut off my leg. Like, you guys are telling me it's going to happen, so why can't we just do it? I'm young, I'm healthy-ish. Like, let's just do this. And the procedure was super risky. I had like a 20% success rate. Like it was, it's horrible. But I, I succeeded. You know, I, I, I had the surgery. We had to wait and see what was going to happen. But I was able to wear a prosthesis, which was considered a huge deal. I was able to walk, which was a big deal. To, to give you guys a, an idea, when they did this surgery, my doctor only knew of six other people in the world since the 1970s that they had done an amputation on with this nerve problem. Like it just was not a done thing. And everybody prior to me was either like in a wheelchair or could like barely walk. So not only was I up and walking and like back in the gym and in physical therapy, but I ran, like I ran one, I ran twice, but I mean, and it was nothing, but it was like this breakthrough. But now they've done this procedure so many times that last year I was reading about a girl 
who was trying out for the Paralympics. Wow. And I was like, it's great. Like, I know that I can't do what I used to do, but I'm so happy with what I have now. It was such a better decision. So. Wow. That's, that's powerful stuff. And uh, I've always, I always knew you, of course you had a prosthesis, but I never knew the full story. And, uh, but that's inspiring. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's also cool now to know the context of your comic as well. And yeah, uh, it, they go hand in hand. I wrote the comic as a way to, to explain to kids about how a traumatic amputation worked in a way in which they could understand. Mm. At the same time, I put in like, if you look in some of the panels, you'll see like how the kids stare at him, how he's got self-doubt because these were all things that I felt and other people go through on just a regular basis. And then how he just gets to this new normal, but how something as simple as just wanting to help people could motivate somebody to keep going. That's, That's really cool. cool. So the, 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 the children's book, the original, like, way that you presented this story was it sort of your traditional kind of children's book with like uh you know like a page or less like limited text and like one static image and or so yeah it, so. it was it was i got i remember looking at my contract and i got so many like full color pages and i had like so many they called them like splash images and i was like this isn't gonna work like they're this this won't work but yeah it was just text on one page and then a picture and i remember the best image i had was i was showing my um my neighbors next door at the time where we lived i was showing them the book and the one the one kid he was a very little kid and he told and he said he was afraid like he looked at him he said he was afraid because it was an image of sam trying to walk on like the parallel bars and there was no backgrounds, nothing. It's just him on these bars and he's shaking. And that's what the illustrator thought. And that was the weird thing too. Like, I didn't really get to talk to the illustrator in that. But when we took it to a comic book, we were able to blow up the images. Like we could put backgrounds in everything. We could show more. And it, it felt more comforting. Like it was. I mean, he was the artist on the first issue, the first seven issues. The way he used color took a sad story and kind of brightened it up in a way. Because I get that all the time. People tell me they're like, they read the book, they read the comic, they're like, it's sad. And I was like, nobody said life was happy all the time. And I was like, but this is something people need to understand and they need to talk about. And it's okay that you feel sad. That's what we wanted. We wanted you not to feel sad for Sam or what happened to him, but we wanted you to go on this journey. And I, I've never met an amputee that's really happy to lose a leg. Yeah, I was, I was wondering, and uh, I was going to ask about the artists. Um, was it the same artist? Was Azami the, the artist on the children's book as well? Or was that a different artist altogether? No, that was an artist that the publisher picked out. I don't okay. even know their name, being 100% honest. They yeah. sent me... It was a really weird process. They sent me a list of like test samples and they were like, pick who you like. And I was like, okay. And it was really weird because I was like, when it came out, like you're trying to do social media and I'm a comic book guy. 
-hmm. Like I believe in crediting everybody and I don't even know who to tag in this picture. So I'm just putting like my name and people are like, Oh, you draw it. And I'm like, no. So it was really kind of weird. So you, the, the, the biggest input you had was like initially being able to pick them, but then once, once the, it was handed off, they sort of, they, they, they read those sort of text descriptions and they were sort of able to pick the imagery they wanted to go, go with it. To a degree. Yeah. They, so they could pick the images or how they wanted to draw it. And then I would see it. And just like a, in a comic book, I could ask to make a change to something if I didn't like it. Okay. Like to give you an idea, I remember the first time I saw a prost they drew a prosthetic leg. Now I'm pretty open with mine. I, I send a zombie. I sent Josh like, 20 pictures of this thing, like up close, personal, like pictures of like all the screws and like how it worked. And they just drew a, a regular person on two legs and they colored it black. I remember that was the first image. Jeez. Uh, and then I'm sure then it was probably like finding an artist when you got to the comic, at least like, you know, it's such a collaborative medium that like, I'm sure that collaboration like was so much more inspiring and sort of helped push the, the, the work along and make it more, more enjoyable. It was, it, it was a lot more fun. It was really kind of stressful at first because this was a project that I really started, you know, I wrote it for, I wrote it for the kid, but then I really started doing the subsequent issues as more of like therapy. Mm. And I was thinking ahead of like, whoever I pick, I want to work with long-term. Mm -hmm. Like I don't want to, you know, you know, stop after an issue, find somebody new. And, but it was weird. Cause like, I didn't know how to contact people. So like I had a Facebook page. So I just, you know, I put up like a one ad and then I got on Reddit and I put on a one ad and I would say if I got, a, I got a few inquiries. Like I didn't get many. I remember initially I got like eight people in two weeks, which I, I thought was pretty good. And now I know is not good at all, but it was funny because the first question was, most of them was how much do I get paid? Like, is this a paid gig or is this a Kickstarter thing? Okay. And I was like, it's a paid gig. I've got some money. Um, what's your rate? Like I'm, I don't want to say I'm great at haggling, but like, I know you never make the first offer. Yeah. And like I had people that didn't want to tell me their page rates because they wanted to know like what was expected of them first. So they could kind of come up with the rate. And then I get a zombies email. And he's like, I saw your Reddit. I would like to do the comic. And he lives in Indonesia. Okay. And I replied back to him. You know, I asked him a few questions. And then that next morning I had, a, I had an answer. And then the next morning I had more information about him. The next morning he had started doing test images. Like he found the book online. He found pictures from it and was starting to draw Wow. And by the time like this two week window had gone, like I was checking like references and like, cause the last thing you, I want to do is like what little money I had saved for this prep. I didn't want to like give it to somebody and then get scammed. Yeah. Cause that would have ended it. So like I'm checking references and like every day I'm getting something from a zombie and the other people I'm looking into, it's just nothing. Mm -hmm. It's only if I ask them something and it's, it was very, what can you do for me? Mm. So it was real. And then when I hired a zombie and I sent him everything, he's like, okay, let me pencil it out. So he pencils it all out. And I mean, he did it in like three weeks. 
Wow. And he sent it to me. He's like, tell me what you don't like. And it was there that I learned, like, we're, we're dealing with two different cultures. Like, I had to find reasons to, like, go on schools and take pictures of schools because American schools look different from Indonesian schools. Right. Like, he wanted to know how to draw the leg because he didn't like the way it was drawn in the book. He was asking me all these questions, like things I'd never thought of because I'd never been asked before. But what I saw through it wasn't, like I told somebody, I was like, it wasn't a control thing. But what I saw was if I asked for something, I wasn't really like, I didn't feel shamed if I didn't like something. And like, by the time we got to issue seven, I was literally like, to, to when we did issue one, like, I sent a zombie the script. I had done the layouts for the pages, like how I thought each page should like, what should be on the page. Cause I wanted a very simple layout for new comic book readers. Mm -hmm. But by the time we got done, like if a zombie said he didn't like something or he thought this would look better, like I, I was just like, cool, man. Yeah. Do whatever you want. Like I wasn't laying out the books anymore. I wasn't doing any because like I could just send him the script and he'd be like, all right, cool. Yeah. I'll get started. And nice. I was like, cool. So it was completely different. And Josh is the same way. Josh is the new artist, Josh Nickerson. He, um, he just did issue eight. That was the first book we did together. And it was the same thing. Like it was very easy going, you know, answer your question, answers any question, ask questions, you answer them. Like it just works so much better. And I find that too, like when I meet creators and I talk about like collabing with other people, they talk about, they're like, look, man, we're not telling you, like, you have a relationship with that person, but, like, you can tell, like, when you really like working with somebody. Like, the best example I can think of is anytime I get something with Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino, oh, or, like, yes. Pat Snyder and Jock. Yes. Like, I know these things are going to be great. Like, you don't even have to sell me on it. Like, I'll, I'll buy it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not a problem. Yeah, Tom King, Mitch Jarrods, that too. Like, you read anything by them, whether you like the story or not, you see that and you're like, oh, these guys like working with each other. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's plenty of writers that I'll just buy. Like, I'm yeah. a bigger writer guy than I am like a like an art guy, but there are some writers that like, I just need to hear the book and I'm like, oh, who writes it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll sign up for that. Yeah, sure, no, no problem. Yeah, I, uh, so with the, uh, with writing it for like an all ages book. Um, so like, you know, the, you, you talked about sort of wanting to sort of have it be something to explain to kids about having a prosthetic and things like that. Um, sort of what's your, what's your approach to writing an all ages book outside of that? Like, um, is it, is there something different in far, as far as like the interiors of the book themselves? Um, anything like that? So, I've got three really like simple rules that I always try to, to try to stick to because I know it's, I write for little kids. I'm talking like kindergarten, kindergartners to sixth grade primarily. Is my okay. Favorite. And I don't know who's going to see it sometimes. So I try to stick to no profanity, no blood or gore in very simple layouts. Okay. I also like my unwritten rule for the dialogue is, is I try to have no more than three word bubbles per panel and no more than 37 words per bubble. And if it's a longer panel, like there's a lot of dialogue, I try to make the next panel very short. Okay. So the other thing I try to do, and this is something that's really 
is really more on the artist side of things. Like Azami and Josh did this very well. Was if you can't read, you should still be able to get the story by just looking at the pictures. Because I have so many kids that, you know, they'll be in kindergarten or first grade and they know words, they can read, but they don't know all the words. And, you know, I tell them like, I t you know, the advice that I tell myself all the time is like, I don't read real books anymore for the most part, because it's very frustrating to reread the same page over and over because I'm trying to deal with suppressing my pain and things like that. So I tell them, I'm like, I just skip that page sometimes. But when it's a comic book, I tell them, no, just look at the picture. The picture should tell you what's going on. And then the next panel should, you know, keep the story going. So I try to make it very visually driven. Mm -hmm. And I try to really limit the dialogue because kids, they don't have the attention span. Like, I also try to keep my comics short. They're only, you know, some of them are six to 12 pages on the top end. Okay. Like they're very short. They're not traditional comic length. Because I know what I'm competing with. And I know that I need to not stretch this out because they're going to lose interest at some point. Right. And if I want to get a message out or I'm trying to explain something, I need to do it fast too. So, so um, I know a lot of like the, the challenge for, for writing to kids is they don't, they, they like to be challenged and um, understand it, but they also don't like to feel like they're being talked, talked down to. So like, how do, how do you handle like, you know, somebody that might be in kindergarten or first grade um, reading the book and, and not feeling like, you know, this is, this is, this is made for little kids, you know, like a lot of times when I was a kid, like the, the thrill was like, you know, I'm reading a little bit ahead of like where I should be or like, you know, something like that. So how, how, how do you handle that? So that's actually a lot of my police training because when we would interact with kids, my approach was always to be honest and to tell them not necessarily like an adult, but to treat them like an adult. Mm -hmm. So I treat them like a person and I treat the writing the same. I tell people all the time, what I write for a kid, I would be plenty fine with an adult reading. And there's enough, like when I'm explaining it, like it shows to people like how the comic works, especially like new parents or parents of new comic book readers. The best way I can explain it to them is, is I want you both to be able to enjoy the story, mm. whether it's the art, whether it's the dialogue, I want you both to be able to get something from it. But at the same time, I change some words to make some things easier for children to understand. Mm. If there's mm -hmm. a simpler word, I'll use it. But at the same time, there are some times where I'll just be like, nope, I know it's a, it's a longer word bubble. I know I broke my own rule, but they, they can handle this. They're an adult. Mm -hmm. they, if they need help, they'll ask for it. Okay. And if they have to read it two or three times, they read it two or three times. They'll get through it. Like, that's the thing with kids. They bounce back like nothing. And they're extremely honest. And it's always funny because yep. I worry about kids the most in their opinion. Yeah. Because if they don't like something, they'll tell you. Oh, yeah. Like, I go into schools and I immediately, like, kind of cringe because I know – this is my audience and I can take off my leg. Like this entertains many a children, child, but if they don't like something, they're going to show you whether in their expressions or they'll just tell you. Oh yeah. 
So listening to kids talk about it. And then the other thing I do is I'm not afraid to let somebody read it. Like I don't just go to adults when I'm like having it proofed or edited or getting advice. I go walk around like it sounds horrible. And I used to go around to the neighborhood where I lived and I would go, Hey, will you read this story that I'm working on? And like the neighbors knew, like I was the comic book guy. Like it wasn't the weird thing. Yeah. I was a police officer. When I lived in Harrisburg, it was a very close knit neighborhood. But like when we moved to our town home in Harrisburg, it wasn't that close knit. Like I still could go back to those kids or I would go to schools and I would say, Hey, I've got a surprise for you. I have a new story. You guys want to check out something new? And I would just listen to what they told me they liked and they didn't like about it. That's cool. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just, just saying, Oh, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, so I guess my next question off of that is sort of what is the, uh, sort of like narrative arc for Sam is like, I'm guessing Sam is the main character. If you would explain to the listeners sort of like what the main thrust of the narrative is, that would be awesome. So yeah, um, superior Sam is the main character. The essential, like the gist of the book is superior Sam's an amputee superhero without any superpowers. Okay. He, with the help of his friends, they try to make their school and their town a better place. And each issue has a little moral or a theme to it. And in a lot of cases, they center around Sam's friends. So a lot of times you're meeting new characters or old characters will reemerge. Like in the very first issue, when you're introduced to, I guess you would call the protagonist, even though there really isn't one in the story. When you meet Billy, he's the kid that dares Sam to jump off the plate, the, the slide that eventually is what leads to him losing his leg. Mm. But when you see Sam, at Billy at the end of the book, he's the one that inspires Sam to still be a superhero. And when you see him in the second issue, he's his partner. Like, he becomes his sidekick. So, like, that's what... I kind of forgot, like, where we were kind of going with that. Um, part of my nerve disease sometimes is I can't focus all the time. Oh, you're I'll, fine. That was- I'll repeat things, so, like... I kind of forgot part of the question. Oh no, that was that was the answer. No, oh yeah, that was a great answer right there. Edit this out. No, 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 okay. no, no, no. You're, you're good. You're so, great. Yeah. Um. So you you're currently at eight issues, or you are currently at nine issues. So we have eight issues out. Issue mm-hmm. eight came out February of this year. Um. We're working on issue nine. My goal every year is to put out two to three books. Okay. okay. This year, my big goal was actually to do Baltimore Comic-Con for the first time. So I was saving a lot of the book's money for Baltimore. Because I feel like in any creator's, like, evolution, at some point you have to make the step up to, like, the next level. And Baltimore was that show for me where I really wanted to try to showcase Sam in a bigger way. But we were hoping to put out issue nine in the late summer or the fall. I usually try to do it right at con time so it's either like like early spring or late fall right when the show seasons are kind of going in full swing so but we're working on nine not the script for nine is done the script is 100 percent done josh has seen the script he's not starting it because unfortunately with everything going on all of my speaking appearances have been canceled every event that i've had all my cons are that are camp have been canceled so there's no money coming in for the book right now. And this is the, probably the most important thing with the book is 
this book's entirely self-funded by its own sales and what I contribute to it. I make nothing off this book. The only people that ever make any money are actually the artists because I do believe in paying your artists. I do this as a way to give back. So not being able to speak and not being able to go to shows really has impacted the book. And it's funny, I'll probably just make the decision, pull the trigger and throw some of my own money into it and just go ahead and pay to have Josh start on issue nine, to at least get the art done. And if we don't have enough money for the printing by the time that needs to come around, then we'll just release it digitally for the time being. So, wow. so I, I'm guessing by the tone that you had there, you're, you're kind of thinking that they will, and I, I might be in agreement with you here that there is going to be no Baltimore comic con later, later this fall. Yeah. I don't see anything really happening the rest of this year. I, I'm, I'm in agreement there. I think Awesome Con said that they're going to they're they rescheduled for December. That's correct. Yes. And the but so there will be that at least. But no. But Baltimore is such a good convention that it's going to really suck not to have that. Or yeah, Heroes Con. I was so excited to finally get to go back this year. It's yeah. been two years since I've been because I like I said I do this other show all the time. I was like I'm going to go this year, and not only that, but the other show was like early in the fall so like i could still do it and baltimore i was like the stars have aligned and then the coronavirus hit yeah and like i don't mean to joke about it. like i know it's a very serious thing but realistically too like the other thing is too they may decide to have baltimore i don't know personally if i want to go yeah but that's the other issue like yeah I it's gonna be at yeah. um my mother has a bookstore here in Stanton where i live and she asked me to come in and do a signing. And I was like, oh, yeah, no problem. Nobody showed up. Mm. And it was just as the virus had kind of came to the U.S. and was, like, really starting to make the news. And nobody really knew what to do. But nobody showed up. And I was like, this is weird. I would have showed up. I didn't know what was going on. Huh? I didn't know what was going on. I would have showed up. I live right up the street from that bookstore. Yeah, so. actually, if you look at my Instagram, there's a joke of me holding a bottle of hand sanitizer. <laughs> like, I have hand sanitizer. Like, I, I you know, and it is what it is. Like, I've done shows where, I've done shows, I've done appearances where nobody shows up. And that's part of the growing pains where I was like, this was really weird because issue eight's been so popular. Mm. Like, it's sold out. I've never had an issue sell out. This book sold out within three hours of going on sale online wow and i was like this is weird wow. like i don't know what this is like but then like i do the like the, the the hometown show like event and nobody comes and i don't blame anybody like i'll tell you what i was the first person to be like telling my girlfriend as we were setting up i was like normally i might put a stack of books out i was like put one out and make sure it's taped shut <laughs> and like when we're done don't put those books back in the boxes with the other books like we're throwing those bags and boards away. Like we're not like, it was really a, I want to be as safe as I can be like kind of thing. Like it was a very like interesting thing because I had just done a con a month, like a few weeks prior. And I was like, all you know, kind of lackadaisical. And then I was thinking, about, I was like, kind of glad not a lot of people stopped by my booth now. Yeah. It's well, following it I was actually sort of seeing it spread because I don't really follow the news I was just mainly following social media stuff and I follow mostly comic creators so I was following the spread of the coronavirus by how many artists were dropping out of conventions in the spring yeah so 
Yeah. And uh, just how many artists were like, nope, this, I'm not going to this. I'm not going to this. This show's canceled. And I was like, oh, it's getting serious. Uh, as soon as that, that Emerald City Comic Con, like when people started dropping, it was like, you saw every scale of emotion in like fans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like when you were watching these people's Twitters and like social media, it was like, like some of them were like super understanding. Others of them were like, they, they downright were like disowning people. And then it yeah. was just like, when you saw the promoters finally were like, we, we should cancel this. Like mm-hmm. it was, the, I think the promoters did the right thing when they finally started stepping in and saying, this is a very serious thing. We can't spread this thing we want people to have a good time and be safe. Like we, we need to stop. Like I had went to a show. I went to galaxy con. Yeah. And it was really weird. Cause I didn't do the show. I actually went on behalf of the comic book store. I went to the retailer summit and then things like, but I saw a lot of creators wearing gloves already. Wow. And a lot of them weren't, and they had posted like no hugs, no handshakes. Um, they would do a picture, but they didn't want you to like look at them. Like it was very like, like I'm not throwing Robbie Rodriguez under the bus, but like, I was like, like you would see him like kind of put his arm around somebody and it was like, okay, there's still a solid gap in between them. Like Mm -hmm. this is when you saw it was serious and like, but you also like, I respected those creators that showed up at that show and everything because they didn't cancel because nobody really knew just yet really what was going on. Yeah. But you got the vibe when you started seeing people like just in the crowd walking around with masks. And I don't mean like the little like manga masks you see at shows, but like <laughs> they're wearing the surgical masks and they've got gloves on and you'd see them flip through boxes. And then like they were hand sanitizing right there. And it was like, this is serious. Like yeah. you, you just got the vibe. And then talking to like people that like my friends, like that were there promoting at the show and they're like, we, we don't want to be here. Like they just talked about, they were just like, it wasn't the end, like the show or the people. It was just the, they knew there was something wrong. And like, they really were like, is it worth it? You know, it's easy for me to, to not go to a show. I don't make a living from this. You just heard me say everything I make goes into the comic. Right now. Yes. I, I do feel a responsibility to like Azami when he was doing art in the book. And Josh, because like, these are people that do rely on that, some of that money. Like, I feel a responsibility and I even offered, you know, Josh, I was like, I, I can give you some work. I can, you know, if you need it. And he's like, no, no, we're, we're good. Like, thank you, but we're good. And it really kind of eased up tension on me a little bit, but it was like, I have friends that this is what they do for a living. And they were like, we're, we're weighing out. Do we want to make a living or do we want to be safe? And like, I know some people that were, you know, they were like, we're not going to cancel any shows. We're just going to go and see what happens. And I had other people that I knew that were just like, I have a regular weekday job. This is a weekend thing. I'm not, I'm not doing it. And then I think there was a, a large portion of two creators that just finally said, my appearance might spread this disease. Yeah. might make somebody come out to a show. I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to go to a show. It's going to draw somebody out and especially either somebody that's infected or somebody that, you know, gets sick from somebody else that they have an interaction with. 
I think that was the thing. I think comic book creators stood up and were like, we are not going to help spread this thing. We're going to do whatever. We're going to do our internet cons and our Twitter cons. But we are not coming out. We are not spreading this thing. Yeah. And it shows too. Like you look at the amount of creators pushing like curbside mm-hmm. and like stores that are pushing curbside and, you know, reading digital comics and things like that. You know, they want to tell people to go to their LCS and to buy their comic. But at the same time, even I think they realize like, we don't want people to get sick. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good transition. Um, and part of your fandom, um, is that you are also on, on the retail side and, and some aspects. So could you tell us a little bit about that and maybe a little bit of how you've seen the, the industry change, uh, by working in, in a, in a shop? So, yeah, it was really funny. In um, 2012, we had moved to Harrisburg, Virginia, and I actually got my comic books at the time in Charlottesville at Atlas Comics. And I would drive the 45 minutes to Atlas every Wednesday. And believe me, I was one of the first, like, 10 people in the door. I was never late. I haven't had a pull list, but I still drove it. And it was funny because I drove, it was the 4th of July, and I was driving to the grocery store to get some some steaks but I was going to grill my neighbor and I were going to grill out since he didn't have his kids and Olivia was visiting family and we were just kind of like we'll, we'll kick it so and he um so I was going to pick up all the steaks and I saw a comic I saw the comic shop in Harrisburg had opened I saw you know the sign for the secret layer and it was a really awkward moment because like I walked in like the door was open there was a bag of money on the counter the lights were all on but nobody was around <laughs> and I thought it was like cop mode clicked on and I thought they were being robbed or had been robbed. So like, I'm like, Hey, is anybody here? And it's great because I'm like on a cane and a walking brace. Like I'm not going to be able to do much. Right. I'm going like, to give them a struggle, but I might be able to probably do much if this push come to show. And like, that's how I met Steve. Because when I joke with people all the time, like when they come to the shop, I'm like, yeah, I'm the OG customer. I'm number one. <laughs> like, I'm not joking. Like I snuck in a day early. And I even felt guilty, like I bought a comic just to buy a comic because like I was like, well, I walked in here early, but it was that thing that um I started just coming around the shop and it was funny because I felt a an immense loyalty to my current my at the time current LCS. But I also was like, well, this is like my hometown shop. I want to support this guy. And I was like, okay, th- this is the best solution I have. I will run out my subscriptions at one at this shop. And then when something new picks up, I'll sub it at this shop. And it was, it was the fairest way I could do it. And it was funny because what happened is, is like Steve had just opened the store. And if you've never ordered from Diamond before, you don't know how to predict things like what's going to go on. And it was right when the Futures End comics came out, all the lenticulars across the new 52 line. Oh, yeah. told you where they were like supposed to end. Okay. And people were going nuts for these things. And Steve had just, he was a brand new store. He hadn't ordered enough. So it was, hey, can you go over to your other LCS and ask if they have any extras and I can buy them? So like, it was this like go back and forth thing where like until the numbers kind of got situated, like I was like a middleman. And then he invited me in one night, like, and he's like, hey, I'm going to be putting books away on Tuesday. If you want to stop by, um, just hang out and talk, you know, it's fine, you know. And I can give you like the list of books I need you to look for for that week and everything. And then I just slowly, like, it's funny, I don't work there. I've just become the hang around guy that hung around way too much. <laughs> and now literally like 
I guess in a way you could say I work there, but I mean like that's where I get all my books. It's where I have some of my happiest memories. It's where I went from feeling alone in a lot of ways to like feeling connected and having friends and having a family again in a lot of ways. And I, I, I really enjoy going to the shop and, and helping people. My favorite thing in the world is new people. I love when somebody new walks in the store because it's a chance to like grow the industry. Hmm. And I feel like comic shop employees should be ambassadors of the industry. And that's how I look at it. And I don't care if you saw the big, the Marvel, a Marvel movie and, or a DC movie, or I guess now a Valiant movie, and you walked in the door because you wanted to check out the comics that inspired this. I don't judge you for that. Like, that's, that's perfectly fine with me. Like, I'll treat you, I'll tell you exactly what book inspired it if I know it. I'll give you recommendations if you ask. My favorite thing, you know, besides being new people, is when they come back again. And then you get to kind of see them become regulars to the point where they're like, we joke, like you've got the Wednesday warriors, mm-hmm. you know, it's like those people that are like chasing that variant or like the big book and you're seeing them standing in line because they might've subbed it, but they want an extra copy because condition is everything. But what's kind of happened now is it's really funny because the industry's kind of had like, since I started like into the industry, like working and helping, well, helping in the shop, like new 52 was not doing well. Like the only book that ever sold well was Batman or a Batman title. Like Superman was in the pits and then rebirth happened. Like that Jeff Johns justice league run picked up with grail and everything. And it launched DC into rebirth. And like the industry lit up because Marvel was doing pretty well at the time, but then DC got back on board. Mm-hmm. and comic shops are seeing these like influxes of new readers or old readers coming back and then rebirth kind of like it, it's like run its course but i don't want to say it's run its course but like you can it feels like D, i know dc's getting ready for I, well i don't know if they're still doing the 5g or not but like you knew dc had a plan for like something to come and marvel's relaunched 50 times because yes. marvel relaunches like yearly yeah give marvel an event they'll relaunch yeah. but with this coronavirus thing, like you, you saw people when, when diamond announced they weren't shipping books, you really saw a fear in people, not just from the creators, but from some of the fans. And I'm not talking to speculators. I don't care about the speculators. Most of them don't even read what they sell. Mm -hmm. But what I'm talking about is those fans that like me or like, no, I know you've got a few books you enjoy. Oh yeah. Like, they're going to miss a part of their life. Like I read Lazarus. Um, I love Lazarus by Greg Rucka and Michael Lark. It's one of my favorite comics. And I saved that oversized issue for last because I knew it was the last new comic book that I was going to get to read for, I don't know how long. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. Like if you look at like what diamond just put out last week about these payment plans, Man, it sounds like Diamond is, like, preparing to, like, dig in for a long term. Like, we're not going to see new books for a while. Damn. Maybe digitally, but not physically. But, like, you saw people coming into shops these last couple weeks, and they're buying whatever they can to either, A, help their shop, or, B, because they want something to read. Mm-hmm. They just don't want to miss out on something. Yeah, well, do you think me, there's – Sorry, yeah, you go ahead, Matt. Do you think there's uh, a little bit of the fear that uh, 
like uh, th there'll be a certain amount of uh, hardcore Wednesday Warriors that will show back up. But do you, is there any worry that like the habit of showing up weekly will sort of disappear when you have this period where you ca you either can't go or you can't go and get anything new? So is there is there any worry about that? Yeah, because comic shops already have the like the laissez-faire kind of reader, like the person that subs a book but might not come pick up three or four copies. Mm -hmm. Like you could tell it's not a giant, like a, a very important part of their life. And then you always have that one person that like they got into comics, they might not like it as much, and any reason to get out they're fine with. So like comic shops are always worrying about like losing subs because comic shops nowadays, like it's not wall books. It's not back issues to a lot of shops degree. Comic book shops are running on what their subscriber base is. Mm -hmm. And the other big fear is, is how many of these subscribers are going to either, you know, they're going to be happy with mail away. Like I think every comic shop employee I ever meet, their biggest fear is like Midtown takes a customer mm -hmm. or it's like a moral victory when they get a customer from Midtown. And I'm not knocking Midtown. I buy from them all the time. You know, my shop can't get all those variants sometimes. And Midtown's always got signed books. Right. You ever stood in Tom King's line? Not fun anymore. <laughs> We've no. stood in it countless times. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, like, I met Tom King the very first – he was one of the first creators I ever met. And, like, I'm not calling Tom King a nobody. But, like, he had his um, – his book was out. Um, like, it was like an empty sky. Oh, yeah, his, his novel. Yeah. Yeah. A, once, then, a once crowded sky. Well, Grace oh, yeah. was the book he was plugging, and Tim Seeley was, like, getting the top bill on the book. Really? Yeah. And I was like, but my girlfriend is an anniversary, as a, as a birthday gift, took me to a Tom King sign. And I remember, like, nobody was there. Like, look, Dick Grayson is very popular, but it's Grayson. Like, that wasn't. But, like, Tom King was the nicest guy I ever met. Like, one of the nicest people I ever met. And I have this very fond memory of meeting him and everything. And, you know, it was very interesting because, like, I joke with people like, yeah, I was a Tom King fan when nobody was reading Tom <laughs> King. But it was, like, this weird, like, thing where now it's, like, what can shops do? And you look at, like, somebody like Tom King who's, like, I'll do a signing at your store. If it'll help you, I'll do it. Matthew Rosenberg's, like, your store needs comics signed. Yeah. I'll sign them. Send, you know, I'll send you whatever. Like you're seeing this industry trying to save itself in these LCSs, but like from an LCS side of things, like it's a scary time. Like, cause you're always like, we're trying to explain to a landlord, like, and I'm trying to explain to just regular people that don't understand the industry. When the bulk of my money comes from new sales and I have a new product that comes out every week and then I don't have it. I only have the old to sell and that's not always going to sell. Mm -hmm. Like I can't force somebody to always just buy a back issue or an older book. Like it doesn't work like that. And then not only that, but I can't even get in some cases, some of those older books to restock, you know, I can only get somebody so far. So it's a really, it's like a scary thing because you really, so many shops relied on diamond. That's their only source of, you know, product. And they have nothing except what they have in their stores. And if you were somebody who like saw this coming and was like, let me stock up, you might have plenty, but there's nothing for anybody else now. Very so true. it's a very like worrisome time if you're a shop.
And especially too, if like you're a shop that's like not in an area that might really quick bounce back from this. Yeah. Like if you're not, you know, New York City, or like you're a small town shop like we are, like we don't know what the financial impact of this is going to be on people. Like well, even, they, yeah, sorry, they really want to come back but can't afford it for a few months. Yeah. You know, we have plenty of customers already. You know, they're, they're some of my favorite customers that'll just walk in and just be like, hey, I lost my job. Um, I can't buy anything this week. Um, I'm sorry. And it's, you know, it's like, well, do you want me to hold stuff till you're able to? Or do you want to pause your account? What can we do to help you? But then sometimes they're just like, I don't know when, and I don't want you to be stuck with my product. So it's a very interesting time. And then you worry about the people who's pro who have product that can't come in. Like, what's going to happen to them? My biggest... I know for me personally, what I think might happen and worries me the most, and I've talked with like a couple of my comic shop buddies from other stores, is when the industry turns back on, especially Marvel and DC, are they going to flood the market trying to get caught back up? Mm. Like the greatest sign of relief was, and I, and I don't mean this in the wrong way, was when Marvel, you know, that it came out that Marvel told people to stop working. Like, I don't want to see anybody out of a job, but it was like, okay, they probably have like maybe till August done, maybe the books are done, mm -hmm. but they can't just bound us down with like 12 issues in the same week to get caught back up. Yeah. Because then you have that moral dilemma of, can I actually afford everything that I've been waiting on plus everything that's coming out? There, yeah. That seems to be the, the, we've had two people on the last, last week that were, Marvel and DC people, and that seems to be their consensus too, is sort of the, yeah, Marvel and, and DC really do care about the market as a whole and aren't trying to like take a foot, like, you know, trying to sort of screw over the little guy like Dark Horse or Image in this time, which is really honorable of them. Well, that was the thing. Like I saw the comics community, like, you know, Twitter is great for this, like seeing people's like natural feelings. Yeah. But, like you saw them getting very mad at Marvel and DC for not coming out on with statement, not doing something for LCSs or for the customers. And it was one of those, you realize that image, boom, dark horse, IDW, all not, not IDW. Cause I know it's got a parent, but like these are companies that are owned by the companies. Whereas mm -hmm. Marvel and DC are owned by giant conglomerates. They can't just come out and say, Oh, we're going to give 75% um, discounts when we come back to shops to, you know, or we're going to do re returns automatically on any unsold product. That'd be a quick announcement. Right. I think it took what DC almost a month before they finally said something. Yeah. But then it was like, you had all these little companies that looked like the heroes and it was just to a high degree because one, they could, they could easily just come out and say something. But then it was the, you know, the other fear too is what is the industry going to look like? What companies are going to be around? Like you look at Oni and Lions Forge. Oh yeah. You know, Lions Forge just announced all their layoffs, but those were two companies that were kind of struggling yeah. and they merged together to kind of save themselves. Where are they going to be? You know, Marvel and DC, they'll weather this storm. It's the little companies you worry about. And it yeah. seems like the littlest companies 
are trying to do the most for the community too. I don't know if you've seen yeah. like TKO's campaign that is going across things. You know, TKO puts out four books a year mm-hmm. in in like a binge format. But they have eight books out total. You know, what is a company like that that's planning next year's line of books going to do without sales, you know? They're not even in the direct market. They're not distributed by DC. But then you get a company like AWA who put out a fantastic first wave of books. And then literally the coronavirus hit the week their books all came out. Yeah. Like, what do you do if you're those companies? And that was actually going to lead into my next question to sort of end on a pause, more positive note. Uh, as someone who worked in a shop and, uh, you know, who does a shop that does curbside, what are the older books you recommend people like, you know, to read during this time? What are good reads? Well, I mean, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I'm going cap volume five. I'm going the first the first 14 issues of that Brubaker run. Yeah. The classics. It's one of the things I always tell people is, is don't ever, you, you can start reading a series of one, but sometimes it's not all good. Yeah. You can skip around. It's fine. So you look at like the classics, like anyone that comes into our shop and we recommend like, they're like, Oh, I like the Batman movies. And we're like, Oh, have you read the black mirror? Let me teach you about the black mirror or here's hush. Mm-hmm. hush yeah. is amazing. It's one of my favorite Batman stories, but it's like, Oh, you like Scott Snyder? Yeah. Have you ever read his Batman? Here's volumes one and two. Well, I only want one. No, trust me. You want two to go with it. Yes. You're going to want the second part of that story. Really, you want to buy the first three. But then it's like, this is a chance, too, to like read the classics. Like, I, We've sold a lot of Civil War and Infinity Gauntlet lately. Cool. Now, granted, because of the movies that were based around them. But we're finding people are coming in and they're trying to learn about some of these stories where it's like, hey, like my, the, one of the easiest things is when people are coming in, they're like, hey, I like this creator, have they done anything else? And it's mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, like I had someone come in and they're like, oh, I really like Civil War, that was a solid book. What else has this Mark Millar guy done? And I'm like, well, do you like superheroes? Yeah, here's Old Man Logan. Yeah. I don't like the X-Men. Trust me, it's not an X-Men book. <laughs> You'll be fine. But then it's like, at the same time, too, we're getting a lot of people that are binging a lot of stuff, you know, Netflix and Hulu and all of that. And they're looking for what's on those shows. Yeah. Like, this has been a great chance for, like, Lock and Key. Like, yeah. to really sell a, a solid book. Like, it's one of my favorite, you know, books that I've read. But then it's like, you know, I'm pushing Why the Last Man a lot because I know it's got, a, you know, an Amazon show, I believe, in production. But I love the book so much. It's such a solid story. And it can quasi-relate a little bit with, you know, Warwick being the last person. Like, he's a little isolated like we all are now. But it's like I find myself going to, like, two longer series books. Like, they have an ending, but they're not just five issues. Mm -hmm. But then it's like, I've sold a ton of God Country lately. Like, God Country's been very popular. People are getting The Walking Dead again. But it's... It's really, you know, I tend to, I don't tend to push a book on a person. I tend to try to figure out what they like, but I will say if there's one area of growth or one set of books that is really selling and I don't even, it's, um, it's the, the Raina Tagmire books in the DCYA stuff. Yeah. Parents are really looking for stuff for their kids to keep them reading and keep them interested in DC with their with their YA and their kids line 
really time this right because a lot of it's really good stuff. Like I'll tell you, as an adult, I'm really enjoying, especially the YA line. Like Catwoman Under the Moon was one of my favorite things that I've yeah, read this year. And like I'm spoiled because I get like advanced copies oh, nice. of books. Oh. But I was like, you know, it was like it's really easy for me to push that stuff because I enjoy it so much. But I'm also taking a chance to like, you know, I we're getting people or parents that are like, well, my kid's not really like a comic book fan. Well, have you heard of Mouse Guard? Yeah. Mouse Guard is fantastic. You know, but it's like, hey, I'm just looking for anything that's a solid read. And I'm just like, here's what I got. Here's like my top 10 of what I have. Because that's the other problem that's affecting shops. We can't get anything. We're running out of product. Mm-hmm. Unless you're a shop that's with other like book distributors right now, distrib- distributors right now, you don't have any product coming in. You only sell what you have. And let's be honest, there's a lot of 50 cent comics in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a cat guy, and let me tell you, I'm not selling Rob Liefeld Captain America to anybody. <laughs> I'm not trying to, to to really rag on Rob and say how bad that run is, but I've read it too. I've read it. I enjoyed the story. The art is horrible. The story was decent, but it's like, I, there's there's some books in the store that are you know they're just gonna die the where they sit, and I'm just like, well, all right. I'm not recommending this to somebody. I didn't like it. I don't think they'll like it. I'm not going to recommend something just to sell it to somebody. Unless they're just like, hey, I just need anything. Okay. Like anything, anything. Like there's a bottom line that you don't (laughs) want. Like, because that's the thing. It's like, it's really funny right now. The other thing that's going on that I've noticed too is the comic community is actually like, Hey, if you need to borrow this, feel free. And they're lending people like little libraries. Oh, nice. Like, you know, like what's in your collection? Like I have a lot of friends that are borrowing books and I'm just like, disinfect it when you give me it back. <laughs> and otherwise, enjoy. Like I just got back all my Why the Last Man hardcovers about a month ago before all this hit. And I was like, this is a great time to reread one of my favorite stories. Very cool. So, yeah. So... Uh, as we get close to the end here, I want to talk. I want to touch base on another aspect of your fandom, one that I know Noah and I uh, will enjoy talking about. Let's talk about the the collecting of original comic book art. Yeah, that was a that was a oh, so it it was a weird progression. I don't know how you guys started, but like I started buying like just lithographs. You know, I would go and I'd meet a creator and I'd be a fan and I'd buy a pinup or something from them. And then it was like, how much for a sketch? And like, I would get some sketch covers done or I'd see somebody's work who on like Instagram or Twitter or something that I liked. And I'd be like, hey, what would you, you know, like, what would you charge to do a sketch? And then I was like, huh. You know, it was funny because like my comic book collecting kind of plateaued. Mm-hmm. Like I was telling people, I was like, they're like, oh, you're a pretty big comic book guy. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am. And they're like, well, what are you looking for? And I'm like, I'm down to 32 books and the average book's like 200 plus dollars a pop. <laughs> they're like, well, what do you collect now? And I'm like, a whole lot of nothing. Like I would go to shows and not be able to find anything because it's either so scarce or it was just too expensive. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, well, original art seems cool. And it was like, well, I'm a cat guy. I know I'm buying cat art. And it was like, okay. So like I slowly kind of started looking online, like trying to figure out like how to tell like 
who the reputable dealers were, what's a good price, what determines a price. Mm -hmm. Like these were the things that it was like, can I afford this investment? Because at the same time, it's like preservation. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't want to put these things in like a $5 frame. You know, like I want to be able to to show them off and preserve them. And it was like, where do I start? You know, like that was the scariest part. And then it was like buying the first piece. Like the first piece I bought was the Kevin Sharp piece because Kevin and I were at a show together and we were just talking and I was flipping through his portfolio and I was like, Oh, you got some cap stuff. And he's like, yeah. And I, he's like, you want to buy something? And I was like, let me, let me text the girlfriend and make sure I'm allowed to start spending. <laughs> this isn't like, you know, like when you show up with like 50 comics and you're like, yeah, I spent a hundred bucks. This is like, I'm showing up with a piece of paper that I'm going to buy. And then I have to pay the frame too yeah but it was like okay she said yes let's do this so because it was that so that was kind of how it went and then it was like and it's addicting oh yeah like it it's probably more addicting than finding the books like i love the hunt mm-hmm. but like buying original art was like one of the most like like i bought the first piece and then i bought the second piece like a month like <laughs> and then it was like I got the third piece as a Christmas gift and now I've gotten a few sketches since then but I haven't bought any page art because I don't have any room for it it's like well if I take down this or I take down that yeah it starts to fit stuff but it's like anything with my collection I think I'm starting to really kind of like get a pedigree for what I want mm-hmm. and I'm not just buying everything right like I was at GalaxyCon last year and I was talking with a dealer and he was actually authenticating a Jack Kirby signature for me. Wow. Yeah. And um, he had seen my leg because I had my, I had just gotten my Alex Ross leg. And he's like, yeah, I'm friends with Alex. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I actually, um, he's, and he's telling me about it as I'm flipping through like all his bins of original art because that's all he sold was original art. He was a dealer. And he's like, yeah, he's like, uh, my basement flooded and, did like $10,000 worth of damage to my house. And I had this painting that Alex had done for me and I didn't want to sell it, but we needed, you know, like to get our basement redone. And I messaged him and he was cool about it. So I sold it. And then he sent me another one. You got Alex Ross original (laughs) art. Like I'm just happy if I own like the sketch cover. And I met Ross like, I'm just thrilled to have met him and got an autograph. Like, you know, and I'm happy with the lithographs. It's like, you have original, but it was like, I remember this show because like I said, you get into shows early and it's weird. Cause even if you're a creator at shows, dealers treat you like a dealer. So you're getting good deals like from the get go. So I remember this show, I got there Thursday morning and was like set up and everything. And then I had spent a couple hundred bucks that day and like my girlfriend showed up Friday morning was like, so what's going on? I was like, I'm going to go look around. And I did the lap and I met the dealer and I was telling him about the Kirby piece. So I went and got, I had, she went and she brought it with her. Like I texted her, you know, to bring it with her and she did and he authenticated, but then he had Epting art and Epting is like the one artist that I would just love to have a piece of page art for especially from that cap run. Don't get me wrong. I would settle for like a piece of velvet art or even the Batwoman run, but like, cause those are some of my favorite characters, but it was like, 
man, to get the cap run. And I'm flipping through this thing, and he's got Epting page art from this run. And I'm like, okay, if he's got a piece with Bucky cap on it, we're just pulling out the credit card. <laughs> and, like, the worst part is, like, a lot of his pieces, they're just filler pieces. Because right. you know how it goes. Like, all the action pieces and the covers are gone. Oh, yeah. They're some of the first, they're the most expensive pieces, but they're gone. So you get stuck with like filler pages. So you're like, all right, do I like these characters? And like, I'm flipping through this like bin. He's got like probably 40 or 50 different pieces of, of Epting art to run. And I'm just like, where's the, where's the 34 plus pages? Like, I just need issue 34 plus page. And he had one page and it had like, a small little like square like corner panel. It couldn't have been but like maybe like a two by one panel and it was mm-hmm. Bucky Cat. And I was like, I flipped to the back and it was like 300 bucks and I was like, let me go. And, and he's like, oh, did you find one? Did I have one in there? Like he was really excited that I found. I was like, yeah, um, you take offers? He's like, no, everything's fine. You know, prices are final because I'm a D I'm a, I'm an agent for these deep, for these creators. Like I, they set the price. I have to sell it at that. I'm like, could, could you text him? Like, that means you got his number. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and like, it was like, we went back and forth and like, it wasn't like a pressured thing at all. Like, and he's like, look, man, he's like, if you can't afford it, that that's cool. He's like, do you want to take a picture? Of it? And I was like, sure. And like, I went back and I was like talking with my girlfriend about it. And I was like, look, can, can we afford it? And she's like, we already spent what your budget was for the show. And I'm like, I know. She's like, well, this is a life lesson. You have to learn to pace yourself and slow down. I was like, but this is why I bring you to all the shows because I give you all the money and I walk around with like nothing. And then I have to go find you. So I can't just buy everything right away. You weren't at this show the first day. Like, like in a way she's like, this isn't my fault. And I'm like, kind of. So, but it was like, I didn't buy it, but it's like, now when I go to shows, like I look at all the wall and then I'm like, okay, who's got original art? Let me start flipping through it. And it's like, I have one of the weirdest things. Um, and I don't even display it because I can't. Do you guys know what a color guide is? Oh, I have a few. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about, Matt. Mm-hmm. So I own the entire color guide for Captain America issue 249 by John Byrne. Wow. wow. It's every page, including the, um, the letters page. It's got notes all over because if you know John Byrne, he wrote it, he drew it, he even colored it himself. Like he colored what he wanted, you know, done. Because and I'm not judging Burn. Burn was a control freak. Mm-hmm. Like he wanted all the control. But like, I can't display that thing. How am I going to display 22 pages of, you know, of <laughs> art? And then when I bought it, actually my girlfriend bought it as a Christmas gift. I, it was a really funny story. I did a show and this dealer walked up to me and he goes, I hear you're a cat guy. And I have two Captain America prosthesis in my leg. I'm wearing a Captain America t-shirt. I mean, barring short of a branding, like I'm there. And he, I was like, yeah. He's like, I got this thing. And he showed me it was a scrapbook. And I was like, okay, what, what, what is it? Because it was, it was rough too. Like it was a shankety looking scrapbook. 
And I opened it up and he's like, open it. And I open it up and there's the 249 comic. Like it was just in one of the pages. And then the next page was the color guide started. And I was like, this is the color guide for 249. He's like, yeah, it's the entire thing. It's all there. And I was like, this is really cool. He's like, yeah, I thought you would like to see it. And I was like, is it for sale? He's like, no. He's like, do you know how hard it is to find the entire book in one place? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I only see pages. But for me, just getting into original art, this was a great time and thing because you know, Matt, color guide pages aren't very expensive. No. But what made this one different was because Byrne had written so much all over it. And then on top of it, it's got like a misprint, but they assembled some of the pages wrong when they were doing it. So like he made notes like, flip this panel, flip that panel, because these are backwards. And if you actually go on Byrne's website, he's got it on them. Wow. Like he's got a note on the bottom of the, of the first page that says, please Xerox and send back, and he signed it, John. And then like he signed it several more times because he would sign it or initial it as he approved everything. Oh, that's why. That's and wild. I was like, so this is, it's got multiple John Byrne signatures in it. But when I was, I noticed it, I looked, the guy that owned it had glued the pages to the scrapbook. And I was like, I don't want this like really rough looking book. And I was like, dude, you know, and he wouldn't sell it. Well, what ended up happening is he had a bunch of other original art. And one of my, um, one of my really good dealer friends from moving pictures comics, his name's Rob. He made a deal to buy all this guy's original page art. He had some Bushema art. He had another couple color, full color guides. Like he had just, he had a lot of unsigned art, you know, stuff that they actually had to send to Heritage, you know, to just sell because they couldn't authenticate it, but at least Heritage could. Okay. Wow. You know, they, they had enough of a reputation that they can authenticate what it was and prove it. But he sold the color guide to my girlfriend who gave it to me as a Christmas gift. And I was like, well, this is great, but how do we get these pages off? Like without destroying them. Right. And I was calling like museums, like, how do you like explaining what was going on? And they're like, if it was us, we would laser cut them. We would laser cut it as best as you can and just leave them where they're at because you're going to do more damage if you try to remove them. So that's what we did. So it's in a, it's in a better, it's in a three ring binder, but it's all in mylar it's all been protected as much as it can be now. Everything that the museums told me I did, okay. you know, to preserve this thing. But it's really funny because it's like, how do you show this off? But every once in a while, I'll meet somebody and I'll like, hey, you want to see something really cool? And I pull it out and I show them. And they just, they think it's the coolest thing because it's a lost art too. Nobody does that anymore. Yeah. Because it's all digital now. So That's like, bad. I've got a buddy, if you want to talk about cool production art, he bought off a dealer at Baltimore, I think it was last year. It's an entire FF issue done by Kirby, but it's all one page. Oh, man. The entire book just laid out on one giant piece of paper where it was like a production, you know, like a production sample so they could see how the issue looked all laid out. And then just like Byrne had done, Kirby signed it all over, approving the production order. And everything. Man, wow. But the thing is like, six feet tall like it's massive and he's like how do i display this and i'm like custom frame buddy <laughs> <laughs> it ain't gonna be cheap and it's just one of those things like build a house around it yeah, yeah. that's what i would do he yeah. keeps the fold he keeps it in the in the envelope it came in because that's just the best way but yeah yeah uh, original art is cool and 
it's really funny too because like my sketch collection it's got some cool pieces but like i always get cap sketches and if i can bucky cap because that's my cap but like i have a mitch jaredis captain america in the collection nice and I jeff lemire so i have oh. people that like never drawn cap or worked for marvel per se like i know mitch i know both have but it's like you don't expect these people to be drawing these characters. Sure. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I love you. The, the stuff you have on Instagram of your cap sketches are, are awesome. Well, Noah, you live close enough. I mean, just get a mask and text uh, me. Yeah. Or give me an address. You I was just about to ask if I could come over and look at your, your artwork. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I have yeah. no problem. That's the thing. It, it's really funny. I don't look at my collection as mine. I love to show it to people. I love when people come in and they see the history or I can teach them something, especially new people. Like they might not be interested in this, but when they can see like original page art mm-hmm. or they see some of the books or they see like the statues and they see the passion behind it, it motivates them. And in a lot of cases, it might inspire, it inspires a few people to get into the hobby and to check it out and, or to at least, it kind of changes it. Oh, from the funny books that I read when I was a kid and threw away, like they have a lot more respect for it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I know I, I was, well, I'm, I'm, I'm very heavily inspired by Matt. He was sort of the one that got me into the original art collecting mainly because I visited his office and I've just sort of drilled over his, uh, yeah, your, your, uh, your original art that you have there. So. Yeah, I've I've been a bad influence. That and yeah. I, I've made him a condition junkie as well. So yes, I'm a very big <laughs> condition junkie. Oh yeah. So my one of my buddies got me hooked on sketch covers, and then I'm like the like the drug dealer that got a couple of people hooked on original art. Nice. And it's really funny because my framer is actually my biggest fan. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I get to bring him this stuff, and he's just like what's what book is this from and then like he's like and i'm like here i brought you a copy to read very cool so like it's a really cool like thing because like i just walk in and like he'll look at some people and like he's all tatted up like he's got superhero tattoos and he's like oh you want me to frame this painting oh hey chris is here let me uh yeah yeah like you can see the smile i love that guy i know exactly who you're talking about yeah he's awesome very cool. Well, Chris, I uh, I really enjoyed this talk. Uh, we got to talk. Uh, uh, you know, we we usually talk to a lot of creators, but talking to a creator and somebody with such a love for for yeah. comics and every aspect of of comics has been been really enjoyable. But as we close up here, could you let people know where they can follow you online so they can keep up with uh, your comics? Yeah, so I have Twitter. It's just my name, Chris Barkham. I have Instagram. It's CB Author, where you can just search Chris Barkham. I have my own website. It's chrisbarkhamauthor.com. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to check out the comics, with everything going on, I've actually put all the comics online for free. Oh, wow. You can actually go to Webtoon or Tapas, and you can read all eight issues. Nice. If you want to buy them, I do have an Etsy store that you can get through through my website, or just search Superior Sam on Etsy. But in times like these, this was the, like one of the ways that I could give back. So I've made it all available. And I do have a Patreon page. You can just search Chris Barkham and you'll find it. Very cool. Awesome. Well, uh, Chris, we will definitely have to have you back on uh, to, to do this again, because I feel like we could touch on a, a number of 
subjects uh, that we, we weren't able to touch on tonight and, and have another really in-depth uh, comic fandom uh, conversation. So anytime you want to come back, you have a uh, open invitation and we would love to do this again. Awesome. I would be happy to come back because my favorite thing is just talking the books. That's true. It's really cool to be a creator, but I so much love the books just so much more. Like if, if I can close it out with this, this will be like my outro line. <laughs> I'm, you'll see me at a show and I'll be just as excited to meet somebody else as you might be to meet me. Like, I'm the guy who literally I have people who are like, didn't I just talk to you at your booth? <laughs> yeah. What are you doing over here? I'm digging through this guy's book. Somebody said he's got a good deal. <laughs> oh, these are, uh, okay. But hey, what are you looking for? I'm digging through this box. Let me keep an eye out on anything for you. Yeah, sure. All right. Yeah, cool. And like, <laughs> I, like for me, that's just the thing. Like I love the books. I love meeting people. I love talking about the comics. And if I get to talk about my comic, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's so great. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for taking the time to do both. Awesome. Yeah, so we'll have links to all of your social media and in our show notes so people can can check those out. Um, If anybody would like to uh, follow our podcast, we are on Twitter at ConstructComPod. Instagram is ConstructingComicsPod. Facebook and YouTube is ConstructingComics. Um, And I'd also like to give a shout out. There's a... uh, Ageless Press Facebook page. If you could give that a, a shout out, uh, Noah and I will probably have some some more information um, on that pretty soon. Um, but I'll have links to Chris's stuff, our stuff, and the Ageless Press Facebook page in our show notes. I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and I encourage everybody to be safe. And we'll be back with a, another episode very soon. <laughs>